This is a Clark University podcast. RFU contains grown-up themes and occasional coarse language when they get carried away. Please take care while listening. Hi, professors. This is Gyani Prathal Wangaswi, and I'm a sophomore majoring in screen studies at Clark University. Recommended for you this week is the film Sugars, from 2018, made in the United Kingdom and the United States, and directed by Sandy Tan. The film stars Sandy Tan, Jasmine Ning, and Sophia Siddiqui, and I'm recommending this film for you because it's the first documentary that I felt personally connected to. On the surface, Shuckers presents itself as a mysterious story, but then delves into the past of the main characters. It deals with trauma, sexism, and power dynamics in a really interesting way and was key in showing me the capabilities of nonfiction filmmaking. This. This. This is recommended for you. For you. For you. A podcast where Clark University Screen Studies professors watch and discuss films suggested by Clark University students. Welcome to RFU. This week we discuss Shirkers, a 2018 British-American documentary film by Singapore-born filmmaker Sandy Tan. I'm Soren Sorensen. This is Rock Sommer. I'm Hugh Mannon. And this film was suggested to us by Gianni Pradamwang Asui who is my advisee, shout out to Gianni. If you haven't seen this film, um, we're not giving you sufficient context here. So you, you, should, you should watch this film before you, you hear this because it will be spoiled um, and you'll have a much richer and deeper experience of this podcast having seen the film. This is a film about a film um, that, that didn't come off, that wasn't made, that m- many people poured their blood, sweat and tears into and uh, had, had their work essentially stolen by a mentor um, a, a trusted older individual, um, specifically three young women, Sandy Tan being one of them, having their work kind of taken away. I, I'm, I'm interested to hear what kind of story you think this is. I remember always being challenged about my own work, like what kind of story is this? Like what is this? Is this a survival story? Is it a? Is it David versus Goliath? Is it this? Is it that? Um, and and so what archetypes did you find inside of this story? Um, is it ultimately? uplifting or sort of depressing in some way um because what for, from what i just said it sounds you know like, like this big bummer but um i don't know I, i'm curious what my what my colleagues here um think my initial impression of this was that this is a film very much of in my wheelhouse and of my generation this is a gen x film uh the filmmakers are definitely of that i think the filmmaker uh sandy tan was maybe born in what 72 three something like that i could be way off but uh definitely squarely within the bounds of generation x and what struck me as i watched this is that um is that for me as somebody who kind of came up along i wasn't in a film program as an undergrad but i was very much like alongside it i was in a telecommunications program and I was taking courses in English, taking courses in film, filmmakers all over the place. And there was a moment between like 1985 and 1990. Uh, Okay. So just to put this film in perspective. So this film like 1989 is sort of the beginning of this film project and the shooting wrapped in 1992. Um, I'm probably missing a little bit of the nuance there, but that's roughly the time frame. And there was this moment between like 1985 and 1990 when consumer grade video cameras uh, and other sorts of equipment made a bunch of middle class kids like me think they were the most important people in the world <laughs> and who were going to be destined to be remembered by all forever for all time. Mm. And so I did what these filmmakers in uh, Shirkers were doing, which was took out, you know, like had, had access to a uh, on the shoulder VHS tape based 
uh, camcorder and went out and shot all kinds of stuff. All these old videotapes are just kind of nothing. It's like me driving around in cars, me talking to friends at a birthday party, me filming like a street festival, me doing this other thing. And I don't even know why I was filming this stuff, to be honest with you. Like, I just thought it was cool that you could. I know what Indiana Jones would say. It belongs in a museum. It belongs in the resource center. That's what we should be saying. (laughs) Right. Well, I think it's kind of like living toward death. So you're like, it's almost like you're preserving an archive of yourself while you're Mm. living your life. And and this film is definitely doing that. And so I think it's kind of of a certain moment, but it's also, you know, it's this impulse to record the coolness of your friends at their coolest point in life. I remember um, that you were the sort of chief ideologue of the trio. Sophie was the gopher. Jasmine um, was the technical person, I think, who was, um, you know, always fussing with this and that. Yeah, Hugh, I understand what you're saying about this being a Gen X film and a film, or at least the original film Shirkers being a Gen X film. I mean, this one too, Gen X on Gen X uh, action here. uh, And uh, of a historical moment and a shift in technology uh, where recording one's life and the world around one uh, takes on a certain like density or (laughs) proclivity, regularity. At the same time, I had this older historical referent that I kept thinking of while watching this, and I couldn't help but think of Andre Bazan's The Ontology of the Photographic Image, in which he makes that exact argument, but instead of for a particular generation, for like the psychology of all art <laughs> and world history. Uh, and he's making this you know, claim for photography and film as like disrupting uh, a pattern and a genealogy uh, of image making because of its ability to like embalm time, as he puts it. This has been an urge uh, as long as humans have been making things. Uh, and here we have the technology that can do it so perfectly. And he gives the example of like family albums uh, doing something a bit different than the painted portraits that came before them. Instead, in these photographs, there's the disturbing presence of lives halted at a set moment, uh, and in the case of film, in their duration too. So they're being mummified and preserved and held for all time, but also while evolving and aging simultaneously in their own time. Uh, And there's so much about this this documentary shirkers about this past film that was never quite completed uh, that I think makes the documentary itself also about <laughs> film itself and what it enables and some forms of memory in relation to the self and to the past uh, that that arguably exceeds any generation uh, and speaks to the way many of us who have lived with the technology since (laughs) Uh, to relate to our own pasts uh, and the pasts of others. And for some reason it fascinates, even though, you know, I didn't know who Sandy Tan was uh, last week and yet her, her past uh, intrigues me. And it, and it is in part because it's a somewhat phenomenal story in past, but I also think this film was so well edited and narrated to, to just, allow a viewer to luxuriate in that experience of memory itself. 
And, you know, that's such a perfect, I think you're, the way you're shooting this through Bazan uh, is such a perfect articulation of what's going on in this film that we could almost shut down the podcast right now, except for <laughs> one really critical fact about this film, which is that the mummification, right, the, the, te- the films, the canisters of film that did, in fact, mummify these teenagers who were shooting this film in Singapore were stolen by their mentor. So that's the really critical plot point. Yeah. He takes them and they just go away for like, what, decades, right? Like 30 years. Oh, wait, no, no. Okay, for us now, it's been roughly 30 years, but... 2007. Cardona died in 2007. Yeah. Four, yeah, it was four years after his death. I'm sorry. So he died in 2007, and then four years after his death, um, uh, Sandy Tan got an email from the, the, the widow. Right. I couldn't help but think that if the film had come out um, the way that they planned it and the way that they wanted it to, and that uh, you know it kind of felt like a Wes Anderson film or felt like a Steven Soderbergh film or felt like Ghost World or you know whatever else, any of the other myriad films that are referenced in, um, throughout the documentary... Um, might George Cardona have gotten all of the credit um, and taken it to the Cannes Film Festival and taken it to Venice or taken it to, you know, Sundance or wherever else. And that this, these great, this great Singaporean talent um, and and the idea of Singapore as an emerging film uh, community or something might've all fallen by the wayside and that George was actually out to pirate this film for himself from the beginning um, and and take all the glory as the director and the auteur. Well, I have two things to say about that. And for one, yeah, like I'm on I'm board. I could definitely see that happening. But there's two things. There's one that like this film therefore illustrates, like the documentary shirkers actually illustrates what it is when we tell our students, when we say a film is not made by one individual and that we have these conventions of naming a film, listing the director and the date it's released, when in fact tens or hundreds or thousands of people authored that text and this film is a perfect example say shirkers the original film had been released george gets all this great glory and acclaim uh but also it would have been unfair to see it as exclusively his film never mind you know primarily his film and so i think it's actually kind of beautiful (laughs) to actually see the varied authorship um and to get I don't know, to be so fascinated with a behind the scenes or a memory of what was for something that we also have not, in fact, seen. And then the second confusing half of the puzzle is that, like, George was the director. Should he have been? Probably not. (laughs) But he was the director, and that's why it actually puzzles me that he did what he did. And there's all these, we end up, the second half of this documentary, she starts traveling around and interviewing others who had worked with him in the 70s and the 80s and other capacities. And there's this pattern where he steals people's work, where he sabotages his mentee's work. But in this case especially, he's a self-saboteur. You know what I mean? Like there's this weird... Uh, he could have been <laughs> an acclaimed film director, but he's not. And and that's his own doing, which yeah. really boggles my mind. My my um my therapist in, in two thousand five or two thousand six would have said that um you're you're afraid of failure and that's why you're not doing these things and that's yes. why you're sabotaging your own projects. I, he probably he actually did tell me that. I shouldn't have said hypothetically. Um that was that was disingenuous. <laughs> but the idea I think isn't it's not so strange when you think about um, and, and, and I've had students talk about this, talk this way as well. And they're, they're much younger than I am, obviously, but, um, that I have this project 
that I want to make, but I, I don't want to, I don't want to make it now. It's not time. I need to save it for when I have all the money hmm. and all the resources and maybe some cachet or, or I've got a few more films under my belt. Um, and maybe George kind of suffered from this idea that he, that he, maybe, maybe it was a really crippling fear of failure. Um, and that if he put this out, people yeah. would laugh at him and, and, and he would be, um, he would experience this kind of humiliation that he never experienced as a mentor. Um, as a mentor, he was this sort of big man on campus and, and whoever he met, their people were intrigued by him and wanted to learn from him. And so I don't think it's so curious at all that he self-sabotaged because I think, you know, I, I think it took me a long time to sort of put stuff out in the world myself, you know? Um, I certainly didn't sabotage other people's projects on my way, just putting out my own, but yeah. So, well, what you're speaking is, is the truth of self sabotage, right? So people have a fear of failure and when they get really close to the end of the line, right? When you're right there at the goal line or right there at the finish line, um, you can see the finish line and then suddenly you realize, wow, if I actually finish this and put it out in the world, that's the moment of crisis because people at that point can either accept it or reject it. And so I, I, I can remember having this experience like to a T when I was working on my dissertation and I can literally remember the night I was driving back from my bowling league and I was thinking to myself, moment of clarity. I was like, this thing's done. Like I, I've got some writing to do, but like I've actually done this. This is actually a solid piece of work. It, it's going to finish. I'm going to like actually get out of grad school, get my PhD and everything's going to be okay. And the moment that I had that realization put like a six month delay into the process <laughs> no. and it just completely froze me up. Oh, man. And so I think that now, but his deal though, George's deal is, is exactly what everybody said. So, so for people who haven't seen it, he sabotages other people's work with whom he's been associated closely. So he's been helping other people. And just at the point that these people that he's been helping are on the verge of having success, he sabotages the project. And so I think there's like one of the things that I think people are going to find when they watch this or if they've watched it is that they've got to figure out for themselves whether they think George is someone who merits any kind of sympathy whatsoever or whether he is a textbook sociopath and i know that word gets tossed around in culture a yeah, lot yeah. but like you need to think about what this guy does from the outset i mean this is a, a man in his 30s initially 40s 40s when the film starts dedicates everything to to mentoring you know these young women who are like 18 19 years old um dies in bed at in his well into his 50s with a 21 year old right i mean in, in houston that's how this all wraps like he has cardiac arrest and so he's clearly got, you know, there's this sociopathic quality of what he's doing. And it's not just that. It's not just the age difference. It's the fact that, you know, he's got this kind of will to mentor people along to a point and then just absolutely cut them off, pull the rug out from under them and sort of in some ways psychologically destroy them. And, you know, I don't know what to say about that other than it's a hard sell. Like he is... He may be one of the great villains in the history of cinema. And it's not just because his, his voice is so annoying to listen to. The widow remains so horrified by her 25 years with George that she didn't want to be named. Yeah, too young, wasn't he? Yeah. No, he was actually four years older than what we thought. When did you find out he was four years older? When we got divorced. He always told me that his his passport had the wrong date and the wrong day. So even his birthday wasn't his birthday? It was two days before. 
but by making it two days later, he got to be a different horoscope. <laughs> he was really a cancer. He is kind of he is kind of like cooked up in a lab to be a sort of um, like a false film idol or something, right? His just everything about him, like the way he dresses, his haircut, his voice, like they're sort of. Um, you, you're not. I think you're not primed to like this guy at all. And I think, um, given you know the film's themes, but also just like thinking about the way older men treat younger women in Hollywood or the way that we think about that now, the minute that this film gets set up, Shirkers the documentary gets set up, you think, well, this is not a good idea. And this person shouldn't be trusting, um, you know, Sandy Tan shouldn't be trusting George Car- Cardona yeah, at all. Right. Um, not Again, not, not that this was Sandy Tan's fault at all. It's just kind of that this person, it would almost seem clear, was... was you know, preying upon, um, you know, younger people with a little bit of money and a little bit of talent and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And, and, you know, but I, I, I don't sympathize with them, but I also think that if it was, if it was a calculated move to steal the film from them, he, he might have made it more clear. It seemed, it seems to me that he was just desperately, yeah. um, um, you know, mentally ill and, 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 and yes, that could yeah. be, that could yeah. be psych, um, uh, it could be sociopathy and it could be, um, some sort of, you know, but the stringing them along and sending them blank video cassettes and all this kind of stuff is is was just um, pretty astounding and 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 difficult to watch. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about what what he actually does because it's not just that he drops off the face of the planet with the film, uh, which doesn't get returned to them until 2011, but it's also when it is finally returned to them, it's without sound. And, you know, this is comes this information comes to us very late in the film after we've been watching a good hour or so <laughs> of documentary, including footage that we presume can safely presume to have been the film itself. And yep. so we, there's a way that we know that this must end well to a certain extent. But what we haven't had our attention called to with this being a talking head. Well, not yeah, a talking heads documentary yeah, sure. is that all that footage, beautiful, gorgeous film footage of Singapore in the early 90s that we've been seeing is without sync sound. So like voices in interview have been talking over it. Beautiful music has been playing over it, but we haven't heard a word of dialogue because that dialogue, those sound effects recorded on set are completely yeah. gone. And, and so there's an important clue there, which is that he communicates with uh, mainly Sandy in the documentary in the form of cassettes. So he doesn't send her letters. He sends her cassettes of his voice. Hi. We were wondering how the film is doing. Um, anyway. So I, I decided I better make this recording before any more st- strange calls come through so he's giving the voice and then also taketh yeah. away right so like when the when the film comes back it's without voice and there's something in that that is truly like horror film worthy I mean, it's really it's break, yeah. Break it down for it? us, Hugh. He he essentially. I I don't know that it's it's knowable whether he threw them away or lost them or that they're sitting in some storage locker somewhere. I mean, I, you know. So yes, it's truly chilling. Um, the idea that this the sound doesn't exist. Um, to to Rox's point about watching, you know, seeing the footage with music and and. Um, and hearing the the narration of the of the Talking Head interviews and voiceover from Sandy Tan herself. Um, 
it, it's there's also sound design um, on the uh, on on the footage. It's and I and I wonder, um, and I'd, I'd love to you know ask you this and 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 rocks as well. Like, do, do you think there was a conversation about trying to piece this film together with with ADR? Um, and with and with sound design because hmm. there is some really sneaky sound design in, on some of those clips that makes it seem like there is sync sound. There's traffic noise okay, yes. and there's you know so yes. I, I don't know. I was curious like there's footsteps and things. So anyway, yeah, Hugh, go ahead. So so what you've got here is kind of like a a profoundly smartly engineered final product, the film Shirkers that we all watched, and then of course the film within a film is is revealed pretty late on to be a film without sound. Um, but I think you know. To me, the critical thing is is this idea of like a partial lack, right? So it's not like in the final analysis, we've got nothing. So it's not an aporia. It's not just a void. Um, it's a partialness. So you've got this film that's lacking a key component part, but you've also got a key component part. And so in the end, I, I think like it's a film that's asking us to think pretty aggressively about like halfness, about, you know, what it means. What, what, what is the status of something that's half missing and half present? Um, and, you know, he like another point that needs to be mentioned that, again, if you haven't seen the film, utterly critical is that he meticulously cares for these re- these 70 reels of film over the course of decades, traveling all around the world. And he constantly keeps these in perfect condition, air-conditioned, climate-controlled, so that somehow these these reels of film will never degrade, yeah. they'll never go away. And then he loses the sound. And then there are even these contemporaneous <laughs> photographs of them in these different locales, which is yeah. just astounding. So he was documenting these, vac- the, it's like these film canisters going on vacation or something, like, you know, greetings from Asbury yeah, Park mean, or something, right? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's uh, inference that his carrying around these film canisters all around the globe is partially responsible for the end of his marriage. <laughs> like yes. his his wife is interviewed, uh, who his you know ex is interviewed late in the film, and she talks about you know they're always having to be a room for these films that they like sort of haunted her <laughs> um, right. and took over her domestic space um, and were such a presence. But ultimately what we're describing, this halfness, this partiality, this like loving devotion to something that is incomplete. Uh, I mean, I kept thinking of film fetishism and Hugh, you're our psychoanalytic critic. Uh, did that, I don't know, did Christian Metz or anyone else come to your mind? Absolutely. So so my, my sense of this, and so it's happening both at the meta level, so it's happening at the level of the documentary shirkers that you can all watch streaming video, but it's also happening at the level of both the filmmakers, like Sandy Tan and the other filmmakers' relationship to their product, George's relationship to the, to their product. I mean, it's this it's this sense that like they're they're invested in something that they cannot have. So I'm going to walk into class tomorrow morning and talk about double indemnity in terms of fetishism. Like Walter Neff is kind of a fetishistic figure. He's so committed to this crime that he's involved in that he ends up ignoring the woman who supposedly sparked his interest in the crime to begin with. So he 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 it's perverted because he's invested it's not because he's invested, it's because he's invested in the wrong thing. So what I think you would have to ask this question. So if George is fetishistic or if George is perverse, 
what's the wrongness of it? What's the kink of it? What's the thing that he's invested in that he shouldn't be? And he's invested in preserving these films, but not anybody seeing these films. So I always make this point in class that you know somebody's a fetishist when they're somebody who polishes their car on the weekends but doesn't drive it. That's (laughs) fetishistic, right? So they're invested in the existence of the car, but not the utility of the car. You know, these films were kept in climate-controlled environments on various continents for 20 years. So he's obsessed with these canisters of film, but not with viewing them and not with anyone else viewing them, right? I mean, he's not a filmmaker. Like, he's someone who wants to capture these footage and arguably wants to capture capture this footage of these young women while they're young and then stick it in canisters so no one can see it. Creepy. Uh, It's just textbook creepy fetishism. And I, by the way, I just want to say that I don't think I think fetishism is perfectly acceptable. Like <laughs> a, a, as, a, as a you know, it's the mo- it's the most harmless of all neurotic complexes because it doesn't affect anybody. You know, you're involved with objects, you're not involved with. So it's kind of in, in a sense it's it's very benign. But this I think is creepy fetishism. Like I think what's that's my read of this and I I don't know if I'll ever shake that sense. I really dislike George a whole oh, well, lot. he's clearly I mean he's fetishizing these 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 girls and women as well. I mean, it's not, it's not, ju- it's not just the objects because as you just put it really well, the objects represent their youth and, and their talent and their vitality. Right. And he's taking them, them yeah. away, taking it away from them um, and causing them to have these crises of, of consciousness of, of existentialism in a sense, like what, you know, why, what, 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 what just happened? Um, and yeah. yeah. And it's, and it's just, and it's really, it's really confounding to watch, but you're left with this, what I think is quite a, quite a beautiful film, uh, which is like this love letter to the film that wasn't made. And yet there it is, it's called Shirkers and Sandy Tan is the director instead of George Cardona. Um, and so it's an, yeah. it's kind of a nice, that's, that's a, it's a great outcome in a way. Yes. Yeah. I mean the, the positive spin on this fetishism talk is that I would say Sandy Tan is a great fetishist herself and she knows that we all are too so she's you know this this is a film about filmmaking it's a film about film meaning like celluloid but also about this medium and what it enables and there's a way, you know, Christian Metz says that like a photo, like a still photo can serve as a fetish, right? Like this is what like a pinup <laughs> is. It's yeah. taking place of sex. You just have, you have this like beautiful woman uh, preserved for your pleasure. Whereas film plays on fetishism and there's something about its movement. And he, of course, writing in like the 60s and 70s is talking about celluloid too and its constant running through the projector such that as you watch a film in a film theater and you're, you know, really into it, obsessed with it, but it's just slipping by you. You can't hold on to it. And if you love a given film, you can go watch it over and over again, but you can't hold it. Uh, dear to you like you could a photograph or an otherwise more literal fetish object. Uh, And so there's a way that Shirkers, the film that was not made, is Sandy slash our fetish here. And it's a film that, uh, you know, she, she has these pieces and these parts and this all, all like many, many takes. I mean, she has the film many times over because it's just the it's the footage, not the completed film. But it's also not edited and not, you know, lacking sound. And as a result, like she can watch it over and over 
and it's never complete and never finished. And we too, like there's, there's like a play and a tease. And uh, I think that's why, you know, Soren asked us, what did this film feel like for you? Was it a dark film or an inspiring film? And I think there's an element of all of that where um, it's beautiful and sad at the same time and it's b more beautiful because it's sad and it's more sad yeah. because it's beautiful uh and it's a really exquisite cinematic experience yeah i, I, I totally agree in, in documentary course this um this year or every year uh, you know we, we talk about the the parallels between uh, you know then they're they're not there aren't millions of them, but but the idea that when you're making a narrative film versus when you're making a documentary, there are going to be things that happen that you don't plan for and you have to sort of react to them and these kinds of things. Um, I, I loved the, the parallel formal elements between Shirkers, the, the narrative, and Shirkers, the documentary, that they were constantly, ro that, that, that they were ro using footage f f that was that was taken when the subjects might not have known that the camera was rolling. Um, which I don't yeah. think is unethical or, or immoral necessarily, um, especially if you have releases signed and things like that. But the 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 idea also that you had these jump cuts in the Shirkers footage where the people and the, the, the performer, like Sandy Tan often, but but some of the other supporting characters would disappear from the landscape um, in a jump cut. So you'd see the landscape with the character in it and then they would disappear. So it's like the landscape is there, but the film isn't, or the film is there, but the person isn't, or it's like, uh, you know, ships passing in the night or something. It's like, you're, you're, this is almost synced up, but it's just not quite. Um, and then there were these great moments with... Um, um, you know, with subjects where they were rolling before they before they started the formal interview, and they had these great asides or moments of unguardedness or honesty um, or, or or humor, for uh, for instance, that 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 happened that I think were really um, beautifully executed. But um, yeah, yeah. So you guys, before we get too far away from this idea, I have to point out this like this uh, reoccurring like story about George that we hear across this film, which is someone who spent time extensive time in Louisiana and had mentored multiple people who ended up working on Soderbergh's sex lies and videotape. Oh, Steve Tyler. Yeah. Yeah. He would go around claiming that the James Spader figure was based on him. Yep. And, you know, uh, everyone's like, Psh, this is like George with his storytelling. But you know what James Spader's character in sex lies and videotape does? He videotapes hundreds of women and keeps the tapes. And rather than developing romantic and sexual, like embodied relationships with them or any other women, s stays with his tapes because they are what make him feel safe. Right. And this is exactly what George has done. Yeah. So maybe we're missing it. Maybe we're totally missing he it. Made him, he made it himself is. into the James Spader character from Sex, yes. Lies, and Videotape but right. after saying that. He's yeah. like, I've said this to enough people that I need to make this happen. Yeah. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> I mean, truly, like there are people uh, uh, clearly, right, out there in the world whose engagement with the world involves mediation. And, and so, you know, what they want to do is like photograph the love object rather than loving the love object. Those people clearly exist, and so maybe he's that. But I think the problem is, a couple things. The problem is that his, the way he does that involves people. So it's not this distanced relationship with them where they're just you know the, the photographic study, right? They're not the model. They're an active participant in this supposed filmmaking project. And then in the end, you know the way that they discover, the way that Sandy Tan discovers that there's nothing to this, 
is that he's out filming. Uh, I, I don't know why they were doing this, but they set up this apparatus in front of a um, uh, an airfield, and they were going to harness this young boy up and make it look like he's flying. And when they were in the process of shooting this, the camera popped open, and she discovered there was no film in the camera. And so the question is, how many times when they went to shoot were, was there no film in the camera? And so I don't know what that means, because if his fetish is capturing people and then stealing, you know, spiriting away the, the reels of film, what do you do with the fact that so often or it seems like the implication of the film is that at least on a number of occasions, he's gone out on full blown film shoots with no film in the camera and just gone through with the film shoots as though there was film in the camera. Yeah, there's another instance relayed to us where they're shooting for a whole day in a bowling alley and he claims that. Uh, the camera jammed. On the first take, yeah. the camera jammed. Yeah. Why did they keep going? And so, yeah, I mean, there's a way that he's like a step. I don't know. Does that make him a step above or beyond the pure fetishist? Like he is trying or, or his, to have relations? His his therapist would say, um, yeah, I was going to say that you have a, a crippling fear or a pathological fear of failure. And in your case, it's it's justified. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. Um, but before we before we wrap up, I do, you know, now I'm feeling a little self-conscious that George has gotten so much of our airtime. And I will say we have yet again presented to us a really lovely film about female friendship. I think that is like a yes. reoccurring uh, theme in the film suggested by our students. What really intrigues me about this film are the present day interviews that Sandy does with Jasmine and Sophia, her best friends who who worked on this film with her. Uh, and it's just a treat to see where these three women have ended up and the different paths their lives have taken. And yet how this one summer making this film was so formative to them each uh, and is so central to their friendship still. So there's a way that like their relationships have all evolved and changed and their lives have gone on. and But... Uh, there's like a not letting go of their three very different experiences of that summer of filmmaking that is just like a really powerful and remarkable like endurance like that is how <laughs> decades of friendship work and so when Jasmine calls her out calls Sandy out multiple times and Sandy's like you know what I was an asshole <laughs> For years, I felt like a crazy person talking about this film that didn't exist. But I was vindicated. Everyone I remembered being fantastic was fantastic. And I was as rotten as I thought I was. She, like, says early on, she's like, maybe I was an asshole. Like, maybe. But the film had to be made. So, like, still yeah, in yeah. her, like, 18-year-old mind. <laughs> yes, I was terrible, but, but. The burden of and dreams. Then, like, <laughs> yeah. and, but, like, an hour later, there's a similar moment. And it's uh, when Jasmine's attending Sandy's wedding in Las Vegas and is shooting the wedding and Sandy's being an asshole again when yep. it's like not this is we are not making a feature film. You are just my kind friend attending my wedding and filming it for me. And she's like Miss Bossy Pants <laughs> yet again. And she and this time she's like, OK, yeah. I really am an asshole. Yeah. And like yeah. 
those people in your life who can tell you you're an asshole, but they're still sitting there with you and smiling and laughing and uh, going about your life, living with you. Like it's that was just also a real surprise. Yeah, those are only There's only old friends can do that too, right? Like we, yeah. we're going to need yeah. twenty more years before we can call each other assholes, like for real. Like it's, it's, <laughs> that's right. We don't have enough good stuff in the bank yet to do that. <laughs> what we'll do, we'll get together and have a, a an RFU episode twenty years from now where we recall all all the sort of origins and stories about this, and we'll disagree on everything. I mean, that's that, that's also funny, right? Because these these uh, the women in the film don't agree with one another about how it went back then. Yeah. And I think there's like a really there's a really crucial Freudian point about that. Like Freud actually addresses this directly. You know, it's this idea that it's like the actual real material fact of what happened in the past isn't what's important. Right. It's the memory. It's the fantasy. It's your version of what happened that matters so much. And if and this is just a this is a I'm throwing down the gauntlet with our listeners. If you have this kind of relationship with your parents you know, ask them about some critical moment in your growing up and sort of say to them, here's how I remember this. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you that what they'll say is that's not how that happened. <laughs> they'll have an, it's they'll have an argument. How it you're how you, trying to get our, our students to get their parents to get in an argument. <laughs> totally, totally. How, how you remember it is never how it happened. And I think that's kind of a theme in this. No facts, only truth. Um, you know, it's, it's subjectivity is the only thing. And so... You know, documentary being held to some different standard than narrative cinema makes me very, very grumpy. And I tell students that the yeah. first day in 214 in the documentary class. Um, yeah. So this this is a great example of that. And I almost think, as I said earlier, like the, the way that this came out, um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, worked out better. Um, than than if the actual film had come out with with George's name as the director. Not that yes. not that the director deserves all the credit, but they still sort of do get all the credit. No, and I think it's as beautiful and as powerful a, a film as any. And so I know that documentary label has so many connotations. Like, uh, but but this shows just how remarkable uh, this genre, this mode of filmmaking, uh, can be. And it tickles and delights. And uh, I had friend, one friend, one of my friends of many of multiple decades, watch it with me the first time, and my partner watch it with me the second, and they were both like really blown away and really moved. Also, there are so many cats, even though cats are not <laughs> central to the plot. There are dozens, and you know, I think there's shots there that that have cats being cats that need not be there, which is speaks to me that this is a filmmaker who loves cats and loves cat photography. Uh, so that's how I got Rachel to, <laughs> to sit down and, and she was not disappointed. <laughs> but just beware, like lest, lest ye, uh, what did I just say? Lest you did. You yes. said lest, lest ye, lest yeah. ye cat fans uh, <laughs> think that this is an exclusively cat film. You're going to see some dogs copulating. Oh my God. The lovers. Ooh, as the they dogs out to indeed. <laughs> The lovers have dispersed. <laughs> Would we recommend this film? I think I already did. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I for sure recommend this. I laughed, um, I cried. You, you know, with a little, a little, little caveat about about George. I think George is going to set some people off, um, but that's okay. I think he's meant to. He's. You just said that he was one of the greatest villains in film history, or something, right? So true. true. Let him. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Gianni. Thank Thanks, you. Gianni. Recommended for you is a Clark University podcast. 
all opinions expressed are those of the faculty participants. If you'd like to recommend a film for an upcoming episode of RFU, you can leave a voicemail with your suggestion at 508-798-4355. 508-798-4355. The Recommended for You podcast is produced by Andrew Hart for Clark University. Music by Jimmy Jackson. RFU logo by AJ Simmons. So the, the coffee... And this relates to the film. The little coffee stand. <laughs> He's like, hear me out. It relates to the film, guys. <laughs> hear me out. Hear me out. The little coffee stand in uh, Goddard Library. Is it pronounced Jasmine's or Jazzman's? J-A-Z-Z-M-A-N. Jazzman's. And the, student, the students pronounce it Jasmine's. And I'm like, look, there's already a word, Jasmine's. But is it? A, yeah, that's that's a willful rewriting right there. Or, or is yeah. It spo- yeah, is it supposed to be a pun? I think it's because it's a coffee place. It's supposed to be like jazz brunch or something like jazz and coffee go together. Yeah. Somebody needs to do. It's a, very a, it's very '90s Gen X in and of itself. It's recalling Frasier and the merging of coffee and jazz that was the oh, early '90s. Sure, I think somebody needs to do a mini doc that that probes. Probes the corporate past of Clark University and tries to figure out who named Jasmine's and how they pronounced it. But Jasmine could also mean Jasmine. It might not be a play on Jasmine, like the name Jasmine in the in the film. Like it, it could be like, like I'm a I'm a fireman. Like I'm a Jasmine. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>